Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show. There are so many wonderful things available for you and bonus episodes every other week just for you as a supporter, as a thank you to you. So please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to get our fun merchandise and the special gifts that we have put together as a show of our sincere, sincere appreciation. And please go to my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com for any of the information that you can download and the webinars that you can purchase for former cult members and people who have been in relationships with narcissists, with controllers, and for your loved ones, for the families and friends of those who have been in these situations to help them heal from how it impacted them, but also to guide them to know how to help their loved ones who have been through an experience like this. And for today, we have Abby Nye of CFC2. Abby Nye is an abuse survivor supporting cult survivors in their journey towards healing. An archivist in Wisconsin, Abby holds an MLIS from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and a BA in Biblical and Theological Studies from Wheaton College. In 2022, Abby co-founded CFC2, a survivor-led advocacy coalition for abuse survivors from Christian Fellowship Center a Christian cult in northern New York. Her work with CFC2 has been featured in outlets such as The Washington Post and Religion News Service. Abby uses her archival expertise to track down corroborative evidence for survivors, while her theological training helps to give survivors language for the theological abuses and distortions that they've experienced. When Abby is not archiving Milwaukee's history or conducting CFC2 business, she works with the ACNA2 team, an advocacy group dedicated to fighting abuse in the Anglican Church in North America. You can find out more about Abby and her work at (music) cfctoo.com. Here is Abby now. It is really, really good and really important that I am talking to Abby Nye today. There is a lot that you have to talk about from your own experience and your advocacy work and also kind of introducing the listeners to things happening, uh, hopefully socially and politically, that um, will be able to be pushed forward for the victims all over who could benefit from new safeguards and important safeguards. So take a few moments and introduce yourself and then we'll start talking. My name's Abby Nye and I am one of the co-founders of CFC2. So that name kind of comes in the context of the Me Too movement. Uh, you have, we have Church2, a lot of denominational iterations of that, SBC2, ACNA2, and then we have CFC2. And CFC2 is a really young organization. It formed last year um, in June, 
And the the formation of CFC2 really came about in the wake of a really disturbing revelation that a member of my former church cult, we can kind of dissect what we want to call it, high control group, a member of that church had sexually abused his small children. The pastors had known about it for a number of years and had not reported it. And it was not until another mandated reporter heard about this and reported it that things started to come to light. Um, So last May, this person was arrested and then kind of all of this came to the surface and a number of people who had left CFC, which stands for Christian Fellowship Center, we were kind of talking, we're like, something needs to happen. Something needs to change. This is not okay. And that was the point where we thought, well, maybe the time is now. Maybe we are the people to start some kind of advocacy group and a group for people to find support. People who are leaving this cult, these survivors need support. They need community. And so maybe we could be that place. And so that's really where we started. And then, you know, a few months into our organization, we really started thinking about how can we prevent this kind of thing from happening again, not just in, you know, this very rural area in upstate New York, but across the state. Because as we know, clergy are mandated reporters in 28 different states. Um, In 18 states, I believe it is... Everyone over the age of 18 is a mandated reporter. And I know, you know, as a therapist, you understand with all the nuances what it means to be a mandated reporter, the value of that. You know, we're looking at this this case that was happening at CFC. We realized this was a pattern, you know, that there are multiple cases of child sexual abuse that had been covered up over the last 40 years. And we know that, you know, every day in the newspaper, you see more and more cases of you know, situations where churches cover up child sexual abuse and other types of abuse. And we learned about the CARE Act. And uh, that's when we started our advocacy for um, that bill, which would add clergy to the list of mandated reporters in New York State. So interesting. So if you can take a moment to describe the CARE Act that I think a lot of people don't know about and what it does, what it was you know, what it's been created for and how it's going to be able to be helpful in a way that other things haven't yet. The CARE Act was first introduced in 2019. And it really was in response to a lot of the lawsuits coming out of the Child Victims Act in New York, which was which was passed at that same time. And so people, because of this new law, started coming forward, especially in the Buffalo area, in Buffalo, New York, And Monica Wallace, who is the assembly member uh, from the Buffalo area in the New York State Legislature, you know, looked looked at all of these cases that were coming out in her area and said, "This is we have to do something about this." Um, And so her team brought forward the Care Act, um, which basically, you know, takes the current mandated reporting laws and the laws that say, you know, these types of professions are mandated reporters, and it just slides in and clergy. And then, you know, as I started getting pushback from, you know, the Catholic Church and other organizations, they also added a carve out that said, if you learn about abuse in confession, you are not required to report. However, like if you learn about in any other context as well as confession, you have to report. 
because as we know, you know, especially with a lot of the abuse that has come to light from the Catholic Church, the abuse is kind of well known in the circles of priests and bishops, and the bishops just kind of move the priests around. That kind of knowledge would not be protected under the clergy penitent confession carve out. So that bill came forward in 2019. It did pass the assembly. It did not pass the Senate. Since then, it's kind of just languished. There hasn't been a lot of attention given to it. I think as we've been talking to legislators in Albany, a lot of legislators are surprised that this isn't already a law. They were like, wait, didn't this pass with the Child Victims Act back in 2019? So our work has been a lot of raising awareness about the fact that this is not currently the law and that there are good reasons for this to be the law. You know, whether it is in the Christian context, whether it is in the Jewish context, Muslim context, a whole other host of religious contexts, clergy or the faith leaders should not be allowed to cover up child abuse, to turn the other way. And we're hoping that the CARE Act will provide better incentives for clergy to do the right thing. If all pastors, if all rabbis did the right thing, we wouldn't need this law. Like, it's sad that we need it, but we do. And so we're hoping that the CARE Act will be a step in the right direction. It sounds really exciting and really good. It's it's really important, I think, for for people, especially kids, to know that there is a system of checks and balances, that there is a resource out there that cares um, if something happens to you. Most people don't know that. And in the past, there really hasn't been a resource. So just knowing that there are these powers uh, that can swoop in and help and hopefully do it well, you know, hopefully do it in a non-traumatizing way for the victim. But what is... Important too is I think, you know, a lot of the stories that I've heard in um, Christian environments, Jewish environments, Sikh, Muslim, really across the board, is that sometimes people are abused at the hands of clergy. Sometimes it is youth group leaders. Sometimes it is the choir director. Um, so, but whoever is in that authoritative position within that religious context and and that there needs to be some sort of safeguard, a net over everyone. And yeah, I think that there are a lot of um there are a lot of things, especially because within more cultic environments, information is kept in-house. There is a lot that just it goes undisclosed and a lot that's covered up. And there's also a lot of, like you're saying, sort of shoveling the problem away, letting it be some other parish's problem or some other synagogues or whatever else. I know that there are people who are really scarred for life, as you're saying, for, you know, when these things occur, especially because within a religious context, there is this sense that you're supposed to be safe. This is where God is, you know, if that's your belief system. And so why is it that someone is able to mistreat you and get away with it? It's a very confusing juxtaposition, very difficult. Absolutely. Yes. I would say that as somebody who is an abuse survivor myself, the way that this kind of high control group practices um, physical violence against children by saying, you know, the Bible tells us that we have to spank you. You know, it's one of those things where 
children who experience this, even if they're spared perhaps sexual abuse, their mind, you know, it's neurologically linking the pain and the the parent love that the parents and the leaders are saying is the cause of this pain. No, I have to spank you because I love you. And so you, you know, people learn to equate love and abuse, which is so incredibly damaging. And so that is something that we certainly, you know, as we try to support survivors, it's something that a lot of us have to struggle with. And it takes years of processing just to disentangle these things. Right. Right. And I think also about certain teachings like spare the rod, spoil the child. If if only that could be rewritten to spare the rod, then you don't damage the child. You know, people have this philosophy that they can be abusive, especially because it's not called abuse. And that that's for their child's benefit. A child also will be given this sense that there's no one there watching for them and not watching out for them. And there's then potentially no one to go to talk to if something happened to them. And that's sort of true anyway in a lot of religious contexts that you're supposed to keep things on your own and you're supposed to be fine or you're supposed to be happy. That's the other thing, you're supposed to be happy. So I'm curious about your experience and to whatever degree you feel like sharing it today, but I'd love to hear more about what happened to you and and then how how it kind of morphed into this fire that was lit inside of you to do something about it. Yeah. So I'm going to back up a little bit and just give a little bit of context about what Christian Fellowship Center is because I think most people are not familiar with it. So Christian Fellowship Center is, when I was a part of it, it was one church. Um, it now has five different locations, but it's it's a very small community. It's located in St. Lawrence, primarily in St. Lawrence County in um, New York. So this is kind of think nestled between the Adirondacks and the St. Lawrence River Valley. So just south of Ottawa. And the church, it's an interesting mix because it was founded in 1973. So it's been around for you know just a couple of decades. And it kind of started out as like this full gospel oneness Pentecostal type church. But it also bring in influences from Bill Gothard and Doug Wilson. And, you know, you sort of have a really interesting mix of um, what I would call toxic theology. If you've seen or heard of shiny, happy people on Amazon, that was essentially my childhood. I was born into Christian Fellowship Center. My parents were drawn into the church when they were college students. Um, the church has and still does recruits very heavily on the local college campuses, therefore local colleges. So my parents were drawn in as college students. And I was, I'm the oldest of nine children. We were all homeschooled, K through 12. Most people at the church had very large families. Homeschooling was expected. It was very insular community. Are you familiar with the term quiverful? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So this was a, a quiverful community. So for, for your listeners who aren't familiar with the quiverful movement, it's essentially, you can kind of think of it as characterized by three different things. Sort of gender hierarchy or patriarchy. So that is the man is the head. Pronatalism, which is another, it's a fancy way of saying no birth control. <laughs> 
pronatalism or or um there's also this term militant fecundity which is a fun one militant fecundity mm-hmm. which yes. no one is going to understand uh, yes I'll look that one up uh-huh. <laughs> and then homeschooling is that kind of that third strand so that's the context in which i was raised i was raised to be a weapon in the culture wars and that brings with it all sorts of trauma in and of itself. Wow. And how we, how are you supposed to be a weapon? What does that mean for you? Or what did that mean for you? Well, as a woman, I was supposed to grow up, get married, and have lots of children and raise them to be the next generation of people who would go out and influence society. Um, because the idea is that you essentially are trying to outbreed everyone who disagrees with you. So boys are raised to go out into their communities to become leaders. And I'm certain, you know, we're certainly seeing this with the the generation of peoples that I was raised with. They're going out, they're starting to run for local office um, and start to try to build influence so that they can take over. Um, And then the women, our job is to raise, educate in a very specific way, as many children as possible. Wow. Incredible. So before we get back to that, I'm just curious about being the oldest in a family of nine first. (laughs) Hello. That is uh, quite a thing. I know that in some cultures and also of previous generations and within certain religious contexts, you know, having nine kids is not as noteworthy, but it is for the sort of mainstream population. My dad actually was one of eight and then a, they adopted an, a ninth who didn't have a home and, but he was the second to youngest he had five older sisters who all were telling him what to do uh, <laughs> uh so he loved he loved actually when he fell in love with my mom i think it was in part because she was an independent person she didn't want to tell him what to do and he's a grown-up he can make his own decisions and she made her own decisions and it was really relieving for him but i think already being in a leadership position in that way within your household. And I think not really being able to, I'm assuming, be a playful young child for very long, you know, that you you were needing to take on some necessary tasks. And so I'm just wondering if you can give a flavor for what it was like in your house and what it was like for you as the oldest before we continue on. Absolutely. I, you know, you see memes around online about the the oldest daughter syndrome, you know, oh, this is our third parent. And that is very accurate when it comes to quiverful families. The plain fact is that when you have that many children that close together, there is no physical way that the parents can take care of that many children. And they're not, they don't expect to. For them, it's very normal to delegate a lot of the parenting responsibilities to their children. And so for me, you know, I have six younger brothers and two younger sisters and I raised a, or helped to raise a lot of them until I was 18. And there were plenty of days in in high school where I would be doing my schoolwork, but I would also be taking care of children and cooking for the family and cleaning and doing other household tasks. I would say that I started cooking for the family maybe around the age of 12. 
But, you know, I started, I think I probably started even sooner than that doing some. So I have 30 years of experience as a 37-year-old. Um, you know, in, in high school, I would just like, it would be a daily thing. Cook six loaves of bread because that's how much we would go through. Right. So you were just going, going, going. It sounds like there's not a lot of time to rest and put your feet up. And that's probably not a value anyway. Absolutely not. Okay. So I hope now you get to put your feet up and not feel guilty about it every once in a while for brief moments at least. But I know that right now you're doing a lot of good, really good work and it's exciting and it it is a lot of work. So, okay. So here you were raised in this environment and I'm wondering also about, I mean, we're going to talk more about the church, but it within your household, was was there the same philosophy that incorporated how you discipline, how you discipline children and what what was it like within your household in that way? I would say that my household took the theological and kind of practical philosophy of the church and tried to take it to the next level. We were always striving to be better than everyone else. We were always striving for perfection. We did things better than anyone else. You could only trust the people in our family to do it right. And so as the oldest child who's an Enneagram one, <laughs> it was a lot of pressure. So that was kind of like the emotional undercurrent. And then my parents um, followed what I, I would think probably is most, most famously taught by Michael and Debbie Pearl. They wrote a number of child training books. They were in the news quite a bit, maybe a decade ago, because a number of children died after their parents um, followed the Pearl's methods of beating their children. So the approach to child training that my family and CFC takes is very much children are born sinful. You need to essentially beat them enough that you can snuff out their own will and then impose what is God's will, which is essentially whatever the parents want, because the parents are God's representatives. So, um, you know, I can tell you my experience was, and I'll, I'll, a caveat, I am, as the oldest of nine children, there is a very large gap between me and my youngest sibling, 22 years. My experience growing up is not the same as all of my siblings' experiences. So I always want to acknowledge that, that what I've experienced does not necessarily discount what other people have experienced and vice versa. So as as the oldest child, you know, I my parents would and, and people in the church usually started spanking babies around six months. There was a lot of um, blanket training, which is where you place a child on a blanket, sort of lure them off with a toy, and then whack them when they go off the blanket to train them to stay on the blanket. And you know, the expect expectation of children is instant obedience and cheerful instant obedience. So they are they are trying to control both your physical and your emotional responses to things. So I'm just curious what cheerful obedience then looks like, let's say with this blanket training, which is even hard to talk about. How would that be incorporated? What's the cheerful part? It's a little bit harder to incorporate for a baby, but you know, it would mean like your three-year-old, you say, it's time to come to the table. And if they and if they don't do it immediately and they don't do it like, yes, mom, like with a smile on their face and like no grind, you know, no complaining, 
no whining, no talk back. Ah, that's what's expected of the the child. Okay. Yes. It's only obedience if it is instant and cheerful. Okay. So what's so interesting about that is that being cheerful is a state of being. It's an emotion, but you can't make someone have that emotion, especially if they're being trained to appear happy, then they're learning how to appear a certain way, which is different than feeling it. And so it should be called something else like fake happy uh, as opposed to cheerful. Um, But in those moments that you learn to kind of subjugate, to suppress, to keep those feelings inside, you learn how to pretend so that you can get along just fine, you know, and not, I guess, be criticized more or punished more. So a lot of people who I work with will say that there is they have to connect with themselves and they have to kind of form an alliance between the outward persona they have developed for survival and how they're really feeling inside. And it means spending some time trying to figure out how they really feel inside or reconnecting with the emotions that they were having initially before they learned to not connect with them anymore or at least not show them anymore. So there's almost this sort of refusion that people find that they need after they leave something like this. Absolutely. That certainly has been my experience. Um, It's taken years of therapy to get to a point where I can identify and be okay with feeling different emotions. Learning to have fun just because um, has been an experience. But yeah, I mean, you know, we as children were trained to display fake emotions because our parents expected, you know, perfect children. And having perfect children gave them status in the church. You know, oh, look at that family. Their children are all so well behaved. They're all raising their hands and worshiping on Sunday morning. And then you find out that the children are being spanked if they don't raise their hands high enough. We would practice church as children. I remember, you know, I was probably like six or seven and we would practice church and, you know, my mom would like put on a worship CD or we would sing or whatever. And, you know, she would sit there on the couch with a drumstick in her hand, ready to spank if we didn't like perform the appropriate church behavior. Wow. Okay. So you'd play church, really practice how to behave there so that you could be this model family. I mean, it seems like it was really self-serving for your family. And I hate to say it in such a cutthroat way, but so much of what happens within insular communities is this is, I there's this sort of, um, it's a weight on people's shoulders, the, you know, what will the neighbors think? And we have to impress the neighbors. We have to impress the people watching. And then it becomes even easier to detach from the self because you know you're responsible for how your family comes across and not bringing shame on your family. It's a whole other step of being removed from the self. Very interesting. Yes. And I will say that also as a homeschooler, there was an additional level of needing to prove ourselves, needing to prove that homeschooling was so much better than all the other systems. Um, So we had to be the model homeschooling family you know, all that that entailed. Right. Okay. Um, I'm sure there's more. There's more to talk about there. But let's talk about the church and so people understand 
what took place there. And also if what still is taking place, if that is also something that needs to be talked about. The church uh, was founded in 1973 and the current pastor, Rick Sinclair, um, came to the church. Um, He was ordained in 1981, if I remember correctly. And he's been the the leader ever since. Uh, He and his wife had nine children as well. And a lot of the leadership positions in the church are held by Rick Sinclair's sons or his daughter's husbands. So it's essentially become a dynasty, if you will, with this second generation, you know, that's grown up in the church that has not left and has now been given leadership positions. So he's really um, solidified his his authority over, I've wondered, was it always like this? Was Was Rick Sinclair always this controlling or did he become this way? And, you know, I've chatted with some people. I've chatted with my father's former college roommate who was also at the church. I've chatted with other people who were there in the early days. As best I can tell, yes, it's it's kind of always been like this. It, it's had different flavors over the years. You know, Bill Gothard was really popular in the early days. And, you know, in the 80s, they were very interested in a book called Pigs in the Parlor, which is a guide to casting out demons. So it from the very beginning, it, it had a, like a very um, an interest in the supernatural. And that certainly continues. And um, yeah, over the years, you have these generations of children who've been homeschooled. So they're really cut off from all mandated reporters. You know, we, our teachers, our parents, people in the church rarely went to the doctor. Therapists are secular evil. A lot of other mandated reporters, people, you know, sort of feared them. Like, oh, we don't want government interference. So the only person who might notice abuse was a pastor. And at CFC, the pastor was teaching the abuse. So I've spoken to a number of different people. I actually went through this past winter and interviewed a number of people who were at CFC over that period of 40 years and um, sort of just wanted to hear about their experiences. And kind of between that and the people who've come forward to us at CFC too. I mean, we're talking at this point, my spreadsheet is 23 abusive, like sexually abusive men. And you're talking about a community of like 400, more than 13 cases of child sexual abuse, six or seven cases of outright rape. Then there's the marital rape that, you know, is, is extremely common, other types of domestic violence. I would say that, you know, any child that was raised with the type of physical discipline that I was, you know, has experienced physical violence. And that's hundreds of children that have come through the church. So as I started hearing these stories, I'm starting to see like a pattern like, oh, that was another family where like something happened and the pastors knew and decided, no, no, this doesn't need to be reported. Like, well, we just forgive them. And then, of course, As we know, many sexual abusers have multiple victims. So nobody knows about this. And they go, these uh, men go on to abuse other children. So after this last case, you know, and that came to light last year, we said, this is, 
this is not okay. This is enough. No more. At least as as much as we can do to stop it, we need to we need to do that. I mean, it is a huge number, and these are the stories that you know about. And it's usually right; it's going to be underreported. So there's this kind of margin of error that's an unfortunate one because people don't want to talk or they don't feel right doing it. But those numbers are really high, and it's really upsetting to hear it. Uh, really disappointing. What do you think? makes for that within that community? I think it comes down to bad theology mixed with narcissistic personalities. So when you have theology that is structured around patriarchy, where the men are in charge, it is sinful for a woman to say no, where the pastor is the ultimate authority and the outside world is evil and cannot be trusted, of course you're going to have abuse. And of course it's going to be covered up. Your pastor isn't going to bring in law enforcement to potentially poke around in the church. And if you believe that children are property of parents rather than humans with individual agency, it makes sense that you would abuse them. They're just property. And that's how I felt growing up, that I was just property. And so as property, then you don't really have room to have rights or feelings. You're just, you're owned by. (laughs) Okay. It's really cold. Yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, on my wedding day, my father walked me down the aisle and he put my hand in my husband's and he said to my husband, I now transfer the headship to you. (laughs) I'm like, I am not a piece of property being transferred in a real estate transaction here. (laughs) Wow. My goodness. You know, the fact that you can have that response to it now, I wonder in that moment if you had a certain kind of feeling or a response to it. I did. But I also, that was 10 years ago and I was in a different place then. I didn't want to rock the boat. I wasn't going to stop my wedding ceremony and be like, you dad, that's so gross. Even though that's what I felt like. (laughs) Right. So for me, leaving the cult and and my family has, has been a very gradual journey. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I think that's good. It's good because you can make, you can kind of adjust to it as time goes on. Uh, and other people around you can adjust to you adjusting to it if it's done in a gradual way, if you can do it that way. And it sounds like you're still moving in a certain direction. And certainly from doing this advocacy work, I'm sure it really lights a fire under you to know that you made the right decision here because you can see what what can happen. All right. Anything else about the church that you want us to know? I think one of the interesting things about CFC is that it is a relatively large church for that rural area. I grew up in one of the larger towns and it was 10,000 people. So we're talking about a very rural community, very poor. There aren't a lot of resources. And so you have a church where everybody is trained to look really, really good. They hold out this utopia to people and they say, come, If you join us, you will have family. You will have community. You too can look like us. We will share the truth with you. 
if you come and you get baptized with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, you too will have the power to have a victorious life. If you are a business owner, all of our people at our church will shop at your business. So they offer up something that looks so attractive, especially in an area where there just isn't anything. And then once people are in, it's so hard to leave. What is there outside? You lose your family. You lose your community. You lose the people who come and shovel your driveway when you're sick. The people who bring you meals when you have a child. You lose the people who employ you or house you sometimes. You lose everything. Because once you leave, you are shunned. And so is that what happened to you? Actually, no. Good. I was going to say that I think, you know, the gradual piece is the piece that is probably interesting here and in it shifting things for you, potentially. I think most people are shunned and most people go through just being cut off and left sort of at the edge of this cliff. You know, what do I do? I feel like I'm just going to fall into an abyss. I don't have anyone. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to be in the world, etc. And for other people, it gets to be slightly different. So how is it different for you? And why do you think it was different? There were a couple of factors involved in that. One of them was that I grew up in an insider family. Like we were in the inner circle. So I did not experience a lot of the abuse that people on the outskirts experience. And I didn't know about any of it until some of it last year. And then I would thought to myself, wait, like I knew it was bad, but I didn't realize it was this bad. And it just it explodes your mind when you realize all of this was going around like when I was a kid and I had no idea. So I can sympathize with people who are still inside and well, I can sympathize with people who were still inside and didn't know about this. Now they have no excuse. <laughs> this is all out in the open now. So I had that, that status that helped. I also was very fortunate. I was one of the lucky ones. I got to go to college. So most of the people I grew up with did not go to college. Especially the women, there was no point. You know, you, you graduate usually early um, from high school because, you know, you really don't need that much education to teach your children. You know, the expectation for me growing up, you know, get married at 18, start having children. Why would you need a college education? For some reason, my parents decided that it was okay for me to go to college. I think partially because my dad was really interested in education and he was pursuing advanced degrees. So it made sense that like I was allowed to do that. And that really started my journey away because I moved from New York out to Illinois. And even though my family did follow me a year later and lived out in Wisconsin for 13 years, that kind of getting away helped start that process of really opening my eyes to seeing this is not normal. And I went to Wheaton College, I got a Bible and theology degree, and that allowed me to say, hold up, these people are looking at the Bible and they're saying all these things and that doesn't make sense. Well, that's, that's a very strange interpretation of that. Well, that's, a, that's proof texting and that's a logical fallacy and what? That's not there. That was another piece of kind of coming away. You know, the, the fact that there are these different interpretations, I'm sure it's it's a confusing thing for a lot of people when they hear that their interpretation was God's 
word. And so how can it be that there are all these, you know, contradictory texts and each of it is God's word? It has a domino effect where you wonder what else you may have been taught that had a certain kind of leaning or uh, bias or something that just was not quite accurate. But for people raised within those environments, it can kind of blow your mind. It really can. So I kind of continued my journey out. I lived with my parents while I was in grad school to save money. And coming back to that familial context after four years of college was, I think, a piece of that journey as well. Because then I come back to it with fresh eyes and I'm like, wait a second, this is not okay. And then I I got married to a great guy and we both kind of grew up in, in similar contexts, uh, religious contexts. And uh, that was kind of the, I would say like a, a watershed moment because at that point, my father no longer felt like he had the authority to tell me what to do. And so I started exploring and I started therapy and I started learning and growing and that's where I am right now. Wow. Okay. So I'm very glad that's where you are right now. When you were talking about how you were noticing what was wrong and you were saying with other people, something needs to be done. There is suddenly this, I think, this silence that can come over people where you're thinking, but what? What is that? What should our role be? And what isn't being provided yet? And maybe there's another organization that already does this. And maybe we need to figure out how to do this differently. And so the action steps are sometimes the really hard thing to figure out next. And so I'm wondering how how you figured out what would be good and what would be needed moving forward once you realized there was something you just really wanted to do about this? I benefited from the fact that I had already been involved in anti-abuse advocacy in the church for a year when all of this news came out. I joined the team of ACNA2, which is working with abuse survivors in the Anglican Church in North America. And so I had a year of seeing like, What does this look like? How does an advocacy group work? How are we supporting survivors? How are we working with the media? Um, How are we putting out educational content? And so when those conversations started in May of 2022, people were throwing out all sorts of ideas about what could we do? And I was like, well, if you want to form an advocacy group, I can probably give you some pointers. And that's kind of how that started. We started with an open letter. We started rolling out stories from survivors. Most of them, you know, published with pseudonyms just because retaliation is a thing up there. And we started publishing educational content, not only for people who are coming out of COC, but people who are in the North Country, which is what we call that rural area of upstate New York, for them to understand, like, what does abuse look like in these contexts? Like, how do we as a community do better? And so I kind of had a little bit of a blueprint there with my previous advocacy work. Politics was new for me and I wasn't exactly sure where to start. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of floundering that we did at the beginning. We were like, we're going to hold a press conference. And then I was Googling how to make a press conference. (laughs) Um, You know, this spring when we were 
going to start meeting with legislators in Albany in person, somebody was like, so you go in and give them your one pager. And I, and I'm, as I'm on the call, I'm Googling, what is a one pager? <laughs> so we've, we've learned, we've learned really quickly. Um, we've made really good connections. It's been really incredible. You know, some people have connected us to other people and, and some people we've just kind of like cold emailed or called. So it's like, you know, I've been able to chat and get support from uh, organizations like the Zero Abuse Project, which is working at a national level on preventing abuse, you know, or we might have connections with the New York State Council of Churches, which represents, you know, seven, 8,000 uh, member churches in the state of New York. It just so happened that when I emailed some people in this rural town in upstate New York to say, your pastors, do you want to come to our news conference? They're like, yes. And my husband's also the president of this organization and the organization supports you too. It's So it's been some serendipitous things like that. We had a really wonderful Jewish community in New York, Ramamu, um, reach out to us after I think one of their members was just kind of like searching on like child abuse reform online. And they stumbled across our website and they reached out. And it ended up one of our team members um, ended up going down to speak with them for their Shabbat of the child about child abuse. And they've become amazing partners, you know, to advocate for the CARE Act. So some of it's been strategic and some of it's just kind of been figuring out like, what's the next thing? Really interesting. The word Romamu, I think means to elevate in Hebrew. So it's like to raise the bar basically, right? Which I think is a really good theme. Uh, for a lot of this, like, let's not let things um, just be left in the shadows. Let's raise the bar, not only on the behavior, but the expectation and the watchful eye that's needed, you know, and having consequences as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rabbi David Ingber, who is the founder of Ramamu, he also is on the board at the 92nd Street Y. So he's... um you know, he's he has uh, connections in New York City. And so he's, you know, been able to connect us to a lot of different people. Um, and he and a bunch of Ramamu folks came up to Albany with us for a press conference. Um, we've had the pleasure of working pretty closely with the sponsors of the CARE Act. So yeah, at this point, we're kind of, we're building coalitions. We're looking for allies because the legislator is legislature is not in session right now. Um, they'll be um, in session again in January. So this is the time for us to keep raising awareness, building connections, and you know, talking with different people about like, okay, why is this important? Right. And so, uh, you know, the idea of why is this important? It seems like it's an easy thing to answer, but that there, there, it's actually there's so many other levels to it. I I think again when I've talked to people who were homeschooled, but didn't have exposure to the rest of the world at all, or who were on a compound uh, or just living within the the walls or the confines of their home or their church, whatever it was. And they just didn't know, again, that there were people out there who were advocates for them. They felt so isolated and so unsafe and hopeless that life was ever going to feel better and that anyone would care. So there is something very powerful about having these organizations and informing people about them so that people not only know they have uh, someone to help protect them, 
but I think it helps define what is problematic about what they're going through. Because if there's an organization that cares about such and such happening to you, that that such and such is clearly a problem and it's not what you deserved and it's not what God wants and it's not a lot of things that it can be called, but it really is neglect or abuse or other things because that's why this organization cares about protecting you from it. So I think it helps give people this frame of reference that's more accurate. Yeah. And I think it's so important for people to realize my pastor, my imam, my rabbi is required to report abuse. And because of that, when a pastor reports, it sends a message to survivors that you know what you experienced was not okay. It sends a message to predators that this church is not a feeding ground for wolves because churches so often are places where predators are attracted because we have grace and we have forgiveness. And if you just repent, you're all good. But having, you know, having a law and having it be very explicit in like the public awareness that this is what is supposed to happen. People are supposed to report so that there is a track record, you know, so this predator can't move on to another church and do the exact same thing. It's so important for just like getting in everybody's mind, like none of this is okay. And the church is going to stand up and protect the most vulnerable people as they are called to do by Christ. And I hadn't even thought about that angle of it, that for people who are predators, uh, for people who are perpetrators, they're going to be opportunistic. They're going to want to find the places where there aren't safeguards but they can get away with it. And so, right, it's saying, no, you you can't get away with it here because we're watching, which is really, really important. How interesting. Yeah, I think about people who have gone to become summer camp counselors and other things because they think that's where they can get away with things and people aren't watching and the parents aren't there. And so, right, I think knowing that there, there are going to be consequences and they're going to be potentially severe, like you'll be arrested, not just move to another place, then it hopefully dissuades people from doing it. And I think just to address this other issue you mentioned before about a backlash, that you know that that can happen when people are trying to advocate for themselves or who are splitting off from something saying something happened to me and I don't want it to happen anymore. It's not always received well. It's not received with support at times. And so what do you suggest for people who are worried about coming forward because of the response they're going to get, or they've already gotten that response. And so it's sort of um, dampened their resolve. What do you suggest? Because I'm sure, you know, you've seen that happen with a lot of people that you're around. Yeah. And I will say as someone who works with survivors, I will I will never pressure anyone to come forward because I understand there is legitimate fear about retaliation um, and pushback. And you should only come forward if you want to. You should come forward if this is going to be something that is helpful in your healing journey. I am not going to pressure anyone to come forward to protect other people even though I would like to, <laughs> that's not my place. Um, I am here to support people in whatever stage of the journey they're on. And that may be at a, at a place where they would like to talk privately with a survivor, advocate, 
and not tell anyone else. And that's okay. And if you decide to share your story, you know, especially for CFC2 survivors, we tried to work with them, check in with them, warn them about the vulnerability hangover that happens when you tell your story publicly and generally kind of provide a, a safe container for all of those emotions and things that come out at that time. It's helpful advice. It's also powerful advice, especially when you're from a community that will tell you that you have to sort of all act in unison. You have to do as you're supposed to. And it's hard then to know how to do something that's different than what everyone else was doing or would want you to do. And then also when you are faced with knowing that there's going to be backlash and you don't know if it's worth the risk, uh, there are people who I've found in certain communities, like in there's a countercult community that is learning, I think, to be more accepting of the fact that not everyone wants to burn the cult down. Sometimes they just want to live their life and f- start to feel free again. And maybe they need to do that forever. And maybe they need to do that for the first few years. And then they'll come to wanting to do something to do more prevention and um, and really take the, the cult to task. Same thing with religious environments. The, I think the goal, part of the goal of healing is to have this sense of agency that you can choose what works best for you. And also knowing that you can change your mind, which is a whole other kind of new idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you can decide on Monday, you know, you're you're filling out your, or you're making your sort of picketing posters and billboards and whatever else. And by Tuesday, you're like, that's so much. I'm not feeling so brave today, or I think it's not going to work for me today. And that's your right. So I like that you're going to be connecting with people wherever they are, uh, which is very important. Also very not call like uh, <laughs> So that's great. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of those things where everybody is in a different place. There are so many people I grew up with who are trying to live their lives. They have no interest in reopening that can of worms. Um, they're like, I don't want to think about that. And I don't blame them. <laughs> I wish I could do that sometimes myself, but I can't. Like, I can't, I can't, I am unable to stay silent. And that is really great because we need you too. We need people like you and the world needs people like you who are going to be carrying the torch and making things happen. So I know we're coming to a close with our time today, which is hard because there's a lot to talk about, but I want to, you know, give this over to you with you being able to talk about anything else that you haven't had a chance to cover about your own life, about the church, about your advocacy work, or and also definitely where people can find this organization online and other organizations potentially like it. You know, for people who are listening, you can find us at cfc2.com. So that's C-F-C-T-O-O. And then that's the same handle for all of our social media channels as well. If you live in New York, please consider signing our petition. We have a petition on change.org to demonstrate to the legislators in New York that this is something that New York people care about. And if you really care about it, contact your local legislator. Tell them this is something that you support. Tell them that it's really important to you that 
children are protected. Pastors are not allowed to cover up child abuse. And, you know, I just want to say as a survivor of abuse, I am so thankful (laughs) for the opportunity to speak with you, Rachel, to sort of join the conversation with all of these other wonderful experts and survivors before the advent of the internet. This would have been much harder. But knowing that there are other people out there that we have experienced similar things for the listeners that were homeschooled, that were raised in quiverful families, I see you. You are not alone. There are other people like you out there. You are always welcome to reach out to me or to CFC2 if you need support. So thank you so much for for sharing your story, for being out there now in the public eye as someone who people can connect with and taking this role, which is a really, really important one. And I'm sure you've already seen has great impact, um, which I'm sure feels really nice, Uh, even though that's not necessarily why you did it so that you could feel something, but it's a nice outcome. So thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat. One more thing before you go. Thank you, thank you, Abby, for talking to us today and for your wonderful work. It is really, really good to speak with you. The fact that you are also the oldest of nine and what that meant for you and what that means for so many people out there who are raised with many, many siblings and especially in a religious environment where the pressure is on to behave and to be sort of just right in every situation. The pressure is on, I'm sure, the older siblings and the oldest sibling especially to be kind of a surrogate parent and to be in charge of younger siblings, which in other contexts can feel like herding cats. But I know within a religious context, you know, you learn to sit still and to be quiet But you also, I think, are worried a lot of the time because people are watching and people are judging and you can't make a mistake and you can't have a sibling or a child acting out because what would that mean? And it means something big and it means something terrible. And it means something about your reputation within the family or as a family that can last for a very long time. I think also about something that... Abby said that was kind of chilling. And it made me think about other societies too, where they have many, many, many children. Sometimes, and I know it has been this way in other cultures, and it has been this way in previous generations, where the mortality rate was so high. So you would have many children in the hope that at least half of them, if you were lucky, would live to see adulthood. But also, you would be using the children to tend to the fields, to take care of things that the family needed to take care of. But one of the things that Abby mentioned was that there was the need 
to raise children to be the next generation and to raise lots of children to be the next generation to, as she said, outbreed everyone who disagrees with you. That was quite a chilling phrase. There is something very cold about it. It doesn't speak with sort of warmth and love, like we decided to have as many children as we could because we love children, but it was to outnumber other people, and it was to outbreed others. So I think there is something that is lacking in that kind of very lovely feeling of having children there. It feels strategic. It feels kind of calculated. It feels like children are then going to be used for something. And I think that that also can affect how a child is raised and how much they might feel that their feelings matter or how much they matter at times, or if they were born for this other purpose, this other reason that was to help sort of win a competition of sorts and to populate the earth with people who were of like mind. I would hope that children born in these environments were not raised just to feel used in that way, although I can't help but assume that it does happen. What's so important for children who are in these kinds of environments where they feel like there was some sort of mission that they were involved in even uh, when they were infants, that the whole purpose for them being born was in some ways for some other goal and to further the goals of the church or the leaders or God as it was interpreted. But I would hope that these children at some point could also get a sense that they matter individually, that it isn't just the number of children that matters, but the fact that they could actually have their own life, their own sets of feelings, their own needs, and that that would matter as much. One of the things that I know helps, and this is something that Abby is doing, is to find your own mission of sorts. And it doesn't mean a religious one, but just something that moves you, something that drives you, something that is in line with who you are, something that you're doing because it speaks to you, but not because you feel like you have to or because that's what your parents told you you were born for. It is a very emboldened thing to decide what your meaning and what your purpose is here on earth. And know too that when you find it, it can also change. It's a very personal decision. It doesn't ever have to be etched in stone. As long as it's yours, take good care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.